It's on? Ah, there we go. Okay. That's the way it was before. But, uh, yeah, it's just a joy to, to be with you guys. So, uh, if you will, open your Bibles to John chapter 12. This is a passage that I love. I originally prepared a sermon on this passage for a, a Palm Sunday message and um, just really appreciated this passage. So uh, turn to John chapter 12. Now, as you're turning there, uh, let me mention to you uh, what, what Jesus, just something to keep in your mind as we look at this passage in John 12. Let me mention to you what Jesus says to one of the churches in Revelation, the church of Laodicea. And I think it gives context to our passage today. This is what Jesus says in Revelation. Uh, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And then I think Jesus explains why he says that in a passage that may be more familiar to you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me. I love that picture there of fellowshipping with Jesus. Notice the mutuality there. He with us, us with him. Now, as you may know, in that passage, Jesus is not calling people to be saved in that, uh, as the old versions say, supping with him, that, that fellowship with him. That's not a call to be saved. No, it's a call for the saved to fellowship, to commune, to enjoy him. And he, he's, he's not meaning literally that Jesus is going around knocking on doors. Uh, no, when John wrote this exile on the island of Patmos, Jesus wasn't physically there with his people anymore. His spirit was, but Jesus was not physically there. So this supping, this eating is symbolic of what it means to know Jesus and delight in him and to love him and be loved by him. So he's talking about that fellowship of communion. But in that fellowship of communion, don't miss the priority that is placed on repentance. For this fellowship to happen, Jesus says, be zealous and repent. And I think there's an implied because right after that. Be zealous and repent because I stand at the door and knock. Fellowship with Jesus requires repentance. Because he stands at the door and knocks, because he is making himself available for fellowship, we must repent. We must change so that we can know him, so that we can have intimate fellowship with him. This means that true communion with Jesus is always disruptive and uncomfortable, even as it is beautiful and life-giving. There is always a turning from as much as there is a turning to. There is always a putting off as much as there is a putting on. Repentance is part of the death that gives way to life. So, brothers and sisters in Jesus, how is your fellowship with Jesus going these days? Or I could also ask, how is your repentance going these days? Now, I say this all by way of introduction to John chapter 12, because John 12 highlights repentance, I believe, and because in John 12, you see a real meal with Jesus. Jesus physically knocks on the door, or somehow makes himself known. 
And they actually let him in, and they have a meal together inside. And I think if we understand John 12 in light of Revelation, we understand better this life, this fellowship that Jesus is inviting us into. So let me read the passage. John chapter 12, I'll read through verse 19, and then we'll pick up on some of the later parts of John 12 in the rest of the message. So keep your Bibles open to that passage, if you will. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, note that word, therefore, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowds had come to the feast, that had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we ask for your help here this morning. Oh Father, you have given us your word. Thank you for that. Thank you for not leaving us without a witness of yourself. Lord, thank you for instructing us in this covenant document how it is that we may live with you and know you. Lord, thank you for coming down to us, for condescending and bringing us a way that we may come up to you. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our neglect of your word. Forgive us for reading it and then going away as if we didn't see anything, Lord. Oh, Father, speak to us, Lord, and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Oh, Lord, we repent of our our stubborn hearts. Lord, give us soft hearts. 
in the hearing of your word, give us life that we may know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said before, I, I love this passage, and I think there's so much going on here. We can't sadly talk about all of it, but let me just give you a few highlights before we, I get into the main points I want to give you this morning. Just try to describe something of what's going on here. Uh, if you notice, this is a passage of action, right? Lots of vivid verbs. Uh, it, the action is, this passage is going somewhere, and in fact, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He, he's on his way there. We know why he's going there, right? I mean, he has a cross upon which he's going to die. We know that. We know how the journey ends. Now, we don't follow him all the way to the journey in this passage. We only see one, one part of that journey, one, one episode in that journey. But what we see here in that episode shows something of why he has come. We see that he stops off at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He stops off at their home, and they live in what you could think of as a suburb outside of Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, stops off, knocks on their door. And he stops off there for what's basically a dinner party thrown in his honor. Right? And, and here's where he has a meal with them. And there was indeed a great occasion to throw a dinner party in Jesus' honor. Not that you ever need a special occasion to have a dinner party with Jesus, I mean... You, you do that any time just because he's Jesus. But, but there is a special occasion because one of the people in that house, Lazarus, had been dead, dead in a tomb dead, <laughs> completely dead. But now he is alive, all because of Jesus. And chapter 11 is all about how La Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And I love the way that if you read this passage, John 12, and look at the way the action unfolds, an important catalyst in the unfolding of the action is just that Lazarus is there in the house, right? He doesn't have to do anything because he's constantly called in this passage the one whom Jesus raised from the dead. Any other fact about him is totally unimportant. He may have been a heart surgeon or, or a physicist, for all we know, but, but what's important for him in this passage is that Jesus raised him from the dead. That's why he's significant. Imagine if you're at a party, and there's a guy over there eating pizza in the corner by himself. That, that might not be very significant, unless he used to be dead. He was buried in a tomb, and now he's there eating pizza at your party. I mean, that he would create quite a stir just by being there in the house. And, and that's the stir that Lazarus is creating. Him just being there sort of changes everything. As I was preparing this message, I was, was talking to my kids. I like to just sort of include them in the, the sermon prep. And, um, and I was talking with them about this passage over breakfast, and I said, you know, what would it have been like to have just, you know, had small talk with Lazarus at that party? I mean, you, you say, well, Lazarus, um, so what have you been up to recently? <laughs> well, just laying around in a tomb. Or, hey, Lazarus, how are you feeling these days? Well, considering the circumstances, remarkably better, actually. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, how do you talk with a guy who used to be dead? You know, it's, what'd you do last Tuesday? Well, I was dead, so nothing. <laughs> I mean, Lazarus' presence has a huge impact in the house for obvious reasons. 
But it also has a huge impact outside of the house, if you listen to this passage. Because in the surrounding region, people who either saw him raise the dead guy from the tomb or heard about it through eyewitness testimony are now flocking to Jesus. They want to see the dead guy and the one who raised him. And, and I think it's sort of like they want to they get a selfie with Jesus and Lazarus together so they can post it and say, look at me with the dead guy. I mean, that, I think that's kind of their heart here. But the religious leaders see that Jesus is now a greater threat because of all the popularity he is getting. And so they say, ah, let's kill him and the dead guy. Let's kill the dead guy. And as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, the crowds come and adore him. And they want him to be king. And the religious leaders want to kill him. So this passage is, this passage is all about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem and the different responses that people have to him along the way. And I think we can see four different responses to Jesus. You could think of them in quadrants. If you're taking notes, you could put like four boxes or, or one, one uh, box and then divide it into four parts. And, and here, here's the, the four points of the sermon, the four kinds of people that he encounters. Number one, those who are loving Jesus for only superficial reasons. <coughs> those who, number two, are hating Jesus for only superficial reasons. And then three, the one who is loving Jesus for who he really is. And then four, and finally, the one who is hating Jesus for who he is. So loving Jesus for superficial reasons, hating Jesus for superficial reasons, loving Jesus for who he is, and hating for Jesus, Jesus for who he is. Now, obviously, only one of these is good. <laughs> that is loving Jesus for who he is. That response alone captures the repentance unto life that we need to have fellowship with him. And as we walk through this passage, I pray that wherever you are on your journey, as you see Jesus in his journey, you will move closer to that right response. Okay, so let's start with loving Jesus for only superficial reasons. And, And who do we see doing this? We see the crowds. The crowds are flocking to Jesus. They're all over him. He's like a rock star here. The text says that the crowds are believing in him and are following him. But if you look closely, as verse 18 makes clear, they're only doing it because they've seen the sign, the sign of him raising Lazarus from the dead. And if you read the book of John as a whole, you see that belief in Jesus because of signs is always inferior not as good as belief in Jesus because of his word. Jesus is always moving people in the book of John from sign belief to word belief. Sign belief is inferior to word belief because, you see, if I believe Jesus simply because of the signs, I never have to repent. I can make Jesus out to be whatever kind of savior I want him to be. And I never have to change to come into a relationship with him because I can define those signs however I want to. And the crowd who is believing Jesus just because of the signs has made him a savior from Roman occupation. And you can't blame them in one sense because Roman occupation was horrible. And now we have a guy show up on the scene 
who has, one, massive popularity, and two, can raise the dead. And if anybody could be successful in going after the Romans, it's this guy, right? Because he can draw a crowd that will fight the Romans, and no matter how many losses you sustain, well, he can just, you know, raise them back up, right? (laughs) That's the kind of general I want to follow, one who can raise the dead. I don't care about his tactics. (laughs) If he can raise the dead, we'll be fine, (laughs) right? And, And we know that's what they're thinking, Because they line the streets to Jerusalem and they shout Hosanna, which means Lord save us now. And they yell, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The message could not be more clear. Lord Jesus, save us. Lead us to overthrow the Romans. Clearly they don't know who Jesus is. Clearly they are only believing him in him for superficial reasons. They're taking the outward signs and they're making him into whatever savior they want him to be. Now, what I love about Jesus here is that he loves the people too much to leave them in that superficial understanding. Now, think about it. From Jesus' perspective, that superficial understanding must have actually, you know, felt pretty good from a human perspective, all things considered. And those all things include there's a bunch of people out there to kill him. So folks don't understand who he is fully. (laughs) At least they're not trying to kill me would be one way of processing that. I mean, think of politicians today. They're really not so much worried that you know their true art as long as you like them enough to vote for them. And clearly, everybody is voting for Jesus. They want to make him king. But Jesus cares about them too much to leave them in that superficial knowledge. And so he he wants to tell them who he really is. Now, how does he do that? Well, remember, they're following him only because of the signs. So Jesus gives them another sign of sorts that throws a wrench (laughs) in what they've made him out to be. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, they want him to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. That would have singled, signaled for them Jesus saying, I am your leader, follow me, we go kill some Romans. That, that's what it would have meant. That's what they wanted him to do. They wanted him to charge in on a war horse. But he comes on a donkey. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know anything about donkeys. I'm from Baltimore. Like, I think I've seen one once in a zoo. So... I wanted to get some understanding in this passage. Like, I lacked some of the just contextual clues that any reader would have had in the first century or anybody who's been on a farm, right? So I, 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 I did what you always do to find information. I went to Google, and I asked Google, can you ride a donkey? And this is the answer it gave me. It said, quote, the average donkey is too small to be ridden by a full-size adult male, but you can ride them if you aren't in a hurry and you don't push the animal beyond its comfort zone. (laughs) That gives me all the information I need. I can kind of fill in the gaps here. Keep in mind Jesus is on a, what does it say? A young donkey. So I'm convinced that the common perception we have here, probably formed by years of coloring pages on Palm Sunday, has, has has been off. It should look like Jesus is on a large dog. 
And I can just imagine the situation where people are lining the streets, waiting for him to thunder in there on a war horse. And he comes, plodding along, on something that looks like a large dog. And they see him from a distance. He's coming. He's still coming. Still coming. (laughs) What's he on there? What does this sign do? Well, first it squelches their nationalistic zeal. <laughs> this guy's not going to lead us to kill some Romans. They, want him to, they believe in him just because of the signs, and he's like, take this, here's a sign for you. I'm on a donkey. He's saying, I'm not going to save you on your terms. I'm not. I'm coming to Jerusalem to save you, all right, but on my terms. And the salvation that I'm going to give you is deeper and more lasting than you could possibly imagine. But not only did riding in on a donkey squelch their false belief, it also led them to true belief. A donkey was a symbol of peace. He came on a donkey not to make war. He's coming on a donkey in order to make peace, but not peace with the Romans, peace with God. You see, the only way for him to make peace with God is by absorbing in himself the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And the only way for him to do that is to die. So he's coming into Jerusalem to save them, all right, but not by his strength, rather by his weakness. The donkey, the sign of that weakness, is fitting for what he is coming to do. Now, friends, I, I wonder if there's a way that your faith resembles the crowd's. Maybe you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus and you say that you're trusting in him for salvation. But what you're trusting in for Jesus is something far less than the salvation that he really wants to give you. Maybe you're trusting in Jesus to save you from cancer or from a broken relationship or or from an addiction or, or from your money problems rather than trusting in Jesus to save you from your sin. It's not that he's indifferent about those other things in your life. But if you mistake the secondary reasons for why he has come to save you, for the primary reasons, you fail to know him for who he really is. Here's a question to find out if you're really believing in him for who he is. Does your belief in Jesus lead you to repentance? Or to put it another way, does your belief in Jesus only confirm what you already thought was true and right? Or does your belief in Jesus lead you at times to turn against yourself? Does your belief in Jesus lead you to see that your greatest problem is not out there, but in here? And does your belief in Jesus lead you to the cross that is the only solution to your deepest problem. Oh, friends, may your belief in Jesus find its true meaning and significance in who Christ really is. May you know him rightly and deeply. And let me tell you, too, that the stakes are high. If all you have is superficial belief, it will not last. Do you know the next time we see any reference to the crowds in the book of John? You know when that is? Yeah, when they shout, crucify him, crucify him. They don't get the salvation they want, so they turn against him. And that brings us to the second kind of response to Jesus. 
that is, those who have a superficial knowledge and hate him. And these are, in our passage today, the religious leaders. Now, studying the religious leaders is, for me, a little bit scary. <laughs> it's scary because we see how much these guys got right and still missed it. They weren't obvious legalists. They weren't mean-spirited people. In so many ways, they were the good guys. They were the standard bearers of God's Word. They knew their Bibles. They were taking tough stands for holiness and righteousness at great cost to themselves. And they offer a sober warning about what happens when we don't repent. By the end of the Gospels, these people don't even have superficial belief in Jesus. Jesus raised a man from the dead right before their eyes and their response to this miracle? Let's kill him. And the guy who was raised. These are the good guys, so to speak. Now, if we skip down to verse 37 in this passage, John, I think he's talking about the religious leaders here. And he says, though he, that is Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They still don't believe. They don't have any kind of belief, even though they've seen everything. He's done all these signs right before their eyes, and they still have not believed. Why not? Well, there's many ways to answer that question, but one of them is a lack of repentance. Skip down to verse 39 and 40 in this passage. John explains exactly why people didn't believe in him. And I think he has the religious leaders on the front of his mind here. He quotes Isaiah, where Isaiah says, Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn. That word turn means to repent. That's what the word means. Lest they turn and repent, and I would heal them. You see, they don't, have a, they don't believe because they have a hard heart. And a hard heart is a heart that will not repent. You see, true belief and repentance always go together. They're a package deal. You cannot have one without having the other. And so a heart that will not repent is also a heart that will not believe. If the posture of your heart says to Christ, I will not yield, I will not change, then you also will not believe. Because true belief requires change. It requires you conform to Him, not make Him conform to you. Now in passing, we should also note that John is saying here that this unbelief, this hardness of heart, is actually part of the plan of God. The hardness of heart does not catch God by surprise. God uses it. God planned it. But it is still their hardness of heart. It is still their lack of repentance, their unbelief, which they are held accountable for. And God has put this in His Word as a warning to us. God does not want us to follow in the path of the religious leaders. He wants us to repent. And what I also love about this passage is that John helps us see what this hardness leads to. It leads to foolishness. Unbelief makes us fools. Not fools in a good way, (laughs) fools in a very bad way. There's deep irony in this passage. Think about it. Jesus has just raised somebody from the dead, which has drawn quite a bit of attention, and the religious leaders say, okay, let's kill the dead guy, and then the people will stop following Jesus. 
Now, at some point, somebody in that group of Pharisees should have raised their hand and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got ourselves into this problem because Jesus raised somebody from the dead. If we go back and kill that guy, (laughs) not sure that's going to fix our problems here because we're dealing with somebody who can raise the dead. They are treating Jesus as though he is just an ordinary political opponent who can be silenced and gotten rid of in ordinary political ways. But no, Jesus is different. Jesus has conquered death. And that has fundamentally changed the rules of the game. They don't realize who he is. And so their their opposing of him is futile. And they realize that to some degree. They say in verse 19, you see we are gaining nothing. They know they can't stop him. That much they admit. And yet they don't stop trying. They say the definition of insanity is to do the same thing and expect a different result. These guys are insane. Against their better judgment, they keep opposing him. And it's not working. But that's all they can do because their hearts are hard and they will not repent. We could draw a thousand lessons from this, but just one is sufficient here. And that is that opposing Jesus is futile and it will make you foolish. If you're opposing Jesus, it will not work, and you will become a fool. And how do we oppose him? We oppose him when we don't repent. Not necessarily by plotting murder. (laughs) When we just don't repent. When we say harsh words to somebody and then justify it. When instead of confessing our sin to God, we rationalize it away. The religious leaders present a sober warning for us. That the good guys can very quickly become the bad guys when they don't repent. And along the way, they'll be revealed as fools. Well, what should we do instead? This brings us to our third point. The kind of response that we need to have to Jesus. To know him and to believe in him. To know Jesus for who he truly is. And this is the response that we see in Mary. It's interesting. It's not the response of the religious leaders. It's not even the response of the disciples because they don't show up as as great um, examples in this passage either. The one who gets it is a woman who would not have had high social standing in that day. But God wants her to get it. God wants her to be the one to know who Jesus really is. And boy, does she get it. Let's think about this dinner party. They're all there. They're gathered together. And Mary goes and takes a bottle of expensive ointment, pure nard, very expensive, a year's wage. And she anoints Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And it's very obvious what she did because she did it openly. She didn't say, hey, Jesus, come into this back room. She did it before everyone. And now the whole house, and probably down to the neighbor's houses as well, reeks of perfume. You can't be in this house without realizing that something drastic has happened. Now what do we make of this event? Let's enter into the eyes of those who are there. What does John make of this event? You know... If I were to look at this example, I might say, wow, what an outlandish thing. Even if I approve of what Mary did, I might say, that's a crazy thing to do. 
But how does John label it? Look there at verse 3. There's one word that, it, that as I was, I was reading this passage, just kept jumping, com- I kept coming back to over and over again. In verse 3, it's that word, therefore. It almost seems out of place. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive anointment. Therefore, she did this. John's telling the story. Jesus is there, so therefore, Mary took the pound of ointment and and anointed his feet. Therefore indicates that something logically and necessary follows, right? I'm sick, therefore, I went and got something. I'm hungry, therefore, I went and got something to eat. I'm sick, therefore, I went and got medicine, right? Therefore indicates that the thing that comes afterwards is not outlandish or crazy, but actually logically follows what came before. Jesus is there. Jesus has done amazing things. Therefore, Mary went and got this expensive ointment and anointed Jesus' feet. Spending her savings on Jesus, her, her, a year's wage on Jesus, to anoint his feet just makes sense to her. It's the appropriate reaction to Jesus because of who he is and because of who he is for her. And who is Jesus for Mary? Well, at one level, he is the one who has brought her brother back. Mary was so sad when her brother died. She said to Jesus in chapter 11, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then the text says that Mary wept. Where? At Jesus' feet. But then Jesus raises her brother from the dead. And what does Mary do? Now she anoints his feet with oil. See the connection there. It's no accident, no coincidence that Mary's emotional moments are taking place both at Jesus' feet. But see the contrast? Mary's sorrow has now turned to joy, her mourning to rejoicing. She is now happy at the feet of this one who she previously wept at his feet. I think this is a great foreshadowing of that final day when God will wipe away every tear because death itself will be dead and no more. As C.S. Lewis says in the last battle in his Chronicles of Narnia series, he says everything sad will become untrue. (coughs) It's a good way to put it. Everything sad will become untrue. That's kind of what happened with Lazarus' death. If you ask Mary, is it true that your brother died? Well, she'd say Jesus has made it untrue. And that's what God will do with every sadness, every sickness, every evil, every tear. Mary knows Jesus as the one who has raised her brother from the dead. But even more than that, Mary knows Jesus as the resurrection and life. You know, in chapter 11, it's, it's quite interesting because when Jesus got word that Lazarus was sick, what does he do? It says in the text, that he stayed three more days in the place there where he was because he loved them. That's strange, love. I get word that a loved one's sick. Oh, because I love them, I'm going to remain right here. That's odd. Why did he do that? Because what they needed most was not to have their brother physically back with them. What they needed most was to know Jesus as the resurrection and life. That was their greatest need. And when Jesus finally gets there, 
He says, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. And then Jesus asks them, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ. She confesses the right words, but it's kind of evident from her emotional state and the fact that she's so angry with him that that's a yes, but I don't understand. It's a yes, but, but explain this whole thing to me. Now, by anointing, Mary's, by anoint, by anointing Jesus' feet, Mary is affirming, now I get it. She is anointing his feet so as to say, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the anointed one. The word Messiah means anointed one. She is anointing his feet. She is Messiahing his feet. She is affirming who Jesus is and humbling herself before him. She's saying, in effect, that that profession that my sister gave back there about you are the Christ, now we really get it. (laughs) Now we understand you are the anointed one, so we we will demonstrate that for you. I think it's instructive to compare this event to what we find in Luke 7, where Jesus is at a party with the Pharisees, and a prostitute comes and anoints Jesus' feet with perfume and wipes it with her hair, much like what we see here. Now, because these events are so similar, some people have said that they're actually one and the same. And they try to harmonize these events and say Mary is actually the prostitute. But, but that doesn't fit at all. The details are so different. This is a different, a different person. But I, I think there's a reason why the events are similar. The Holy Spirit wants to teach us something. Wants to teach us that Mary, a fine, upstanding Jewish woman, <laughs> Mary, a very respectable person in the community, she comes to Jesus in the exact same way a repentant prostitute comes to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to get out of the similarity. Not that they're the same events, but they're coming to Jesus in the same way. You know, we might think, we might be tempted to think, that wiping Jesus' feet with your hair is an appropriate react- action to, for Jesus from a prostitute. That's how a prostitute is supposed to respond to Jesus. Because such humility is befitting a prostitute. But Mary, oh, well, well, she's a dignified woman. So Mary will respond to Jesus in a dignified way, except that she doesn't except that she responds to Jesus in the same way a prostitute does, by lowering herself entirely before him. This woman, Mary, who would have never let her hair down in a room full of men, is now using her hair to wipe and wash a man's feet. Now, there's nothing sexual going on in this at all. Don't don't think that. But John wants us to see that she is giving her honor to him. Do you give your honor to Jesus? Do you give your money to Jesus? That, perf- that perfume was her nest egg. It was her security. And in one moment, it's all gone. It's all gone for the sake of the Lord. And it's worth it. You know, if you read the book of John too, you see that this act, this act of anointing, of the perfume and the anointing and the wiping, This act defines her. In chapter 11, when we're first introduced to Mary, even before her brother died, we're introduced to her as the one who anointed Jesus' feet with oil and wiped 
his feet with her hair. That's how Mary is introduced well before this event happens. See, it defines her. She's branded this way for her whole life. For the rest of her life, her reputation will be the one who gave all her savings to anoint somebody's feet with oil and wipe it with her hair. That's how she will be known. And Mary, for Mary, that's entirely worth it. Why? Because she gets who Jesus is. And she gets that he has come to die. Notice how, jo- uh, how Jesus interprets her actions. We saw how John interprets her actions as an event that just makes sense. How does Jesus in- interpret her actions? He says, leave her alone. In other words, that you could translate that, let her have it. I think that means <laughs> let her have this event. L- let her keep this memory. Don't take that from her. Don't rebuke her for this. For she is anointing my body for burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. I think Mary knew that she was anointing Jesus for burial. That's why she did this. She knew that because Jesus had been sending signals for quite a while now that he was headed towards death. His disciples are blind to it. Peter rebukes Jesus when he hears him talking like that. But Mary gets it. Mary understands that in order for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life, he must be the one who dies the sacrificial death. She gets it. Repentance leads to understanding. Repentance leads to understanding. Don't miss that here. Uh, Mary's humbling of herself before Jesus. Her her conforming her, her understanding to who Jesus is leads her to understand Jesus better. I wonder if Mary's example challenges you as it does me. I wonder what you make of Mary's therefore. Do you see that extreme and outlandish devotion to Jesus just makes sense? in light of who he is, and therefore it's not extreme and outlandish one bit? What act of devotion would just make sense for you to do if you really understood who Jesus is? What would it look like for you to be as completely sold out to Jesus as Mary is here? How would that change your relationships with others? How would that affect how you use your money, how you use your time? How would that affect who you spend your time with and your agenda for those relationships? For Mary, encountering Jesus for who he is changed everything. And I pray that it will change everything for you as well. Now, as much as I would like to just sort of end here on this positive note, we have one more response to Jesus to consider. This will be brief. And that is knowing Jesus and hating him. And who's doing that? Judas, right? He's the other person we haven't talked about. I think this passage is is pretty clear in setting up for us a contrast between Mary and Judas. They're contrasted here. Whereas Mary is exceedingly generous and gives her all to the Lord, Mary's generous, she gives. Judas steals what rightfully belongs to the Lord. 
right? He's been helping himself to the money back. Mary is entirely transparent and honest. What she does, she does in the light. Nothing is done in secret. Everything is out in the open. Judas, however, (laughs) he lets on as if he's concerned about the poor, but he's actually trying to gain something for himself. His motives are, are veiled or secret. But his greatest act of treachery is not in stealing some of the dough from the money bag. It's handing Jesus over to those who want to kill him. John identifies Jesus here in verse, and Judas here in verse 4 as the one intending to betray Jesus. That, that word betray means to hand over, to deliver up unto. And then here's what you need to recognize for this point. And that is that this word is only used in a context where you have a relationship with the person that you're betraying. You don't betray a total stranger. You betray a friend. And see, it's used in the context where your relationship is supposed to be one where where you build up the person. They're supposed to be able to trust in you. And you use that trust not to bring that other person a blessing, but to harm them. Think of how Judas actually does betray him. With a kiss. Jesus recognizes the unique severity of what Jesus did. Later on, Jesus will say, The one who has betrayed me over to you has committed the greater sin. You see, in in a sense here, Judas understands what Jesus is up to and betrays him anyway. He's not deceived, just as Adam was not deceived. They both commit their sins with their eyes wide open. Now, friends, if it shocks you that Judas can know Jesus and still betray him, you've not yet considered the power of sin. But I I think that's normal for us. I think we often don't consider the power of sin. How many times have we thought, surely this person will respond because of all the evidence they've seen of the power of the gospel? But we don't realize the deceitfulness and hardness of the heart. I think sometimes parents make the mistake of thinking that if they can only show their children the love of Jesus, then surely their children will come to faith in Jesus. But do you think you can do a better job of showing the love of Jesus than than Jesus did of showing the love of Jesus? Mm, Probably not. If we understood better the power of sin, I, I think we would be quicker to see evidence of God's grace. Jesus said that true light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. If we truly understood the nature of sin, we should all look at Judas and say, if not for the grace of God, there go I. But you know what's most remarkable about this text? It's not the so-called problem of evil concerning why Judas betrayed Jesus. It's really the problem, put that in quotes, of how Jesus could display so much love towards Judas. I mean, think about it. In your humanity, how would you respond to the guy who you knew was about ready to hand you over to crucifixion? With a kiss. I don't know about you, but, but I don't think I'd respond so well. Jesus, on the other hand, 
Now, I don't think Jesus really believes that he can turn Judas. Jesus knows that, that Judas is part of God's plan. Yet, all the way up to the end, Jesus is loving Judas. He won't give up trying to reach him, to urge him to repent. In fact, in the next chapter, Jesus washes all the feet of the disciples. All the disciples, including Judas' feet. That's the kind of love this Savior has. Isn't that the kind of Savior you want to open your heart up to? Isn't that the kind of Savior you want to know? Well, in conclusion, we've seen four different kinds of people here. Only one of them is good. (laughs) Only Mary represents the kind of repentance unto life that Jesus wants for his people. So, Be zealous and repent. For, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we see that you are there. And that you are holy. And that you are gracious. And you are calling us to repent. Repent so that we can come to know you and love you. Lord, make us the kind of people who look at our sin and say, yes, I know it's there, but I hate it. Lord, cause us to see our sin with your holy eyes. With eyes that are holy like yours. And want it out of our lives. And Lord, let us do this with a backdrop of your gospel that doesn't lessen the severity of our sin, but only increases it because we see the kind of one that we have sinned against with its holy and pure love, but yet calls us in the context of this travesty that we've committed to say it is safe to come out of hiding. It is safe to reveal who we really are because you love us and you have forgiven the one who trusts in you. And so we come claiming Christ's death in faith that you will heal us and make us whole. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.